Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. The views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up See the signs of the times, if it's time Rise up, rise up When death and hell dwell among all God's people When those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing Rise up when famine claims millions When justice gives blind eyes to billions When the Lord's anger is no longer feared If his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the seas spill over And the mountains shake, break and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you can't see the sun at all Rise up no matter if the prize is high in the skies Or deep Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parkes and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the May 30th, 2018 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio in the last month of our sixth season. In our next show, we'll be seven years old. On and near this day in history, on June 1st, 1843, Sojourner Truth began her travel as an abolitionist speaker. Given the name Isabella at birth, Sojourner Truth was born in the year 1797 in Hurley, New York. She was enslaved approximately 28 years of her life as property of several slave owners. When she was 10 years old, Isabella was sold for $100 and some sheep. Dutch was her first language, and it was said that she spoke with a Dutch accent for the remainder of her life. Although she was unable to read, truth knew parts of the Bible by heart. As an abolitionist and traveling preacher, Isabella understood the importance of fighting for freedom. 
after her conversion to Christianity, she took the name Sojourner Truth. Sojourner, because I was to travel up and down the land, showing people their sins and being assigned to them. And Truth, because I was to declare the truth unto the people. This new name reflected a new mission to spread the word of God and speak out against slavery. Then, on June 2nd, 1863, Harriet Tubman, under the command of Union Colonel James Montgomery, led black Union soldiers in the Combahee River Raid. The only woman to lead a military raid in the Civil War, she took three federal gunboats and a company of 150 black Union soldiers downriver, freeing over 750 enslaved African Americans along the way. Tonight, our guest is Asheville, North Carolina abolitionist, Quaker, Black Lives Matter activist, human rights activist, and tribal rights activist, Sharon Smith. Sharon and I go way back and have made abolitionist history together on multiple occasions. Tonight, she'll tell her story. In direct action news, we are going to continue to remind you about a call for a Juneteenth 2018 mobilization against prison slavery from SPRC this year. Supporters of Operation Push are calling on all opponents of mass incarceration and modern-day slavery internationally to honor the Juneteenth holiday, Tuesday, June 19, 2018, with community organizing and direct action. Another reminder, a nationwide prison slave labor work strike is being called for on August 21st through September 9th. Angola Prison has already begun. If you know someone inside, tell them what's going on. Our abolitionist in profile is Eliza Ann Ann Gardner, May 28, 1831 to January 4, 1922. She was the founder of the Missionary Society of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, AMEZ. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Dantia Patterson. On May 16th, a judge dropped all charges against him and overturned his murder conviction after 11 years in prison as an innocent man. As always, we have far, far more information available than we have time to share it, so we'll cover what we can while staying on point. Be sure to follow the information we provide on our Facebook page at New Abolitionist Radio so you can see it in real time as we talk about the stories. Also, remember to support our efforts by joining us as a member at community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. You'll find the links for today's program on our abolitionist planning page. If you've got a question or a comment, you can always join us by calling in at 704-802-5056. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, Max, good to speak with you and uh, join the program on this Wednesday night. I always look forward. I feel like this is the most important broadcast that I participate in, this new abolitionist radio. And, and I was just reminiscing the other day, man, about, you know, when I became an abolitionist, which was just a year before um, the beginning of new abolitionist radio. And I had attended a a event that was held by some black nationalists um there was a apostle i forget the name of the church that he went to and i don't have his name in front of me it's been a it's been a long time but i remember him saying that you know we when we go to africa we want all of our people released from these prisons and and that we will rehabilitate them and teach them job skills and 
I just was recounting how that's that that part right there might have when he said that I think that was a seed that I was unaware of prison slavery abolitionism that was being planted in in me by that man so so you know I, I just really look forward to doing this program and just telling people the truth that you know about slavery man and and that these things that we have all these different names for it is just another form of slavery that uh frederick douglas warned us about it it was going to reform itself and of course we got the documentary slavery by another name so i'm, I'm just i'm just excited man to uh talk to sister sharon smith tonight i'm very well aware of her great work in the abolitionist movement and the other things that she are she is in involved she is involved in so i'm just looking forward to an information packed program yes same here too i'm looking forward to this evening and like you scotty uh i, I look forward to the program when you first asked me to join you here i knew abolitionist radios now seven years ago uh going in going out seven years ago i remember i had sat and thought about it for a while uh, because I knew what I was getting into. This was going to be something that would be permanent. Like, you don't you don't step away from this. You know what I mean? Once you're an abolitionist, you're an abolitionist. We're going to change your mind. And I want to commit myself fully to being able to do the best that I could possibly do, which is why I've been here with you for seven years now. I only missed a couple of programs, and that was usually because I was either on the road do, doing abolitionist work or I had some family issues that I had to deal with. And... Uh, and you've Over been years, doing a great some, job, Max. Just let me tell you, if, I, us, uh, for if I've never told you before, you've been doing a wonderful Thank job. You, and I have to say that uh, I made a wise choice when I reached out to you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. I, I think we made a great team. And as speaking of teams, as I was saying, other members have been a, a part of this in the past seven years. Uh, like Brother John Coolidge, uh, Johanan, man. Johanan was fire. I, I miss Johanan. Uh, I wish he'd come back one day and join us again. But uh, life called and he had to t uh, answer. So, yeah, like Johanan. And then uh, we started out with Erica X. Uh, and also uh, we had Legacy Leonard, who passed away uh, while a broadcaster on this program. Uh, she passed away of cancer. Um, and even other uh, people have joined us temporarily, like Otis comes in every now and then. What's up, Otis? You know, uh, Yusuf is coming in it, come in and helped us co-hosting. And, uh, you know, we've had a few others over the years. I was listening to the announcement I made, Scotty, back in uh, a, a couple of days before our first broadcast. I was at the session live in Columbia, South Carolina. I was hosting that at the time with Henry Henderson. Uh, the brother who provided the uh, clips last week, as a matter of fact, and uh, we told the world that we were about to start this new thing called New Abolitionist Radio and why we were going to be a part of it. Uh, it was, it's, it's nice to see. Uh, next week, or, or rather on the 13th, when we do our program, then I'll uh, bring some of those old videos out to share. Yeah, it's so been a hell of a week for me, man, uh, in addition to, you know, just the study of what we've been doing. But I talked to my nephew yesterday and you know I, I told you uh that i had these two sons who were in prison and one of them came out justice he's out now he's been out for a year but the other one's still in there and he's actually my nephew but i raised him as my son from birth and uh he called me yesterday from new jersey prison and told me about how he spent 17 months 
in solitary confinement, uh, how, because he was so rebellious, that they made him sleep in shackles for a week, sleep in freaking shackles for a week, and 17 months in a torture chamber, and how uh, they have brutalized him and ganged up on him, the guards and stuff like that, and he's just trying to hold on. He's got two more years left, left to serve, and he'll be free, God willing. See, it's just amazing, and it's just so heartbreaking to hear about your personal family members, like your children, right. going through these tortures and horrors on a regular basis. And I know we will get to it uh, later in the program. Cool. I, I, I talked to you in the chat. Well, Max, I'm getting some feedback off, off of your uh, your line. I'm hearing myself talk back to me, so I, I'm not sure what's going on with your connection. But, um, you know, when you describe those type of scenes, this is why I made the post the other day when people say, when chattel slavery exists. All chattel means is is a item of property other than real estate, okay? So that's a human being, that's your car, that's, that's, that's all chattel, chattel mean. And prisoners are classified as property of the state or property of the federal government if they're in a federal system. But when I, I and that's just heartbreaking to hear that, that your son went through that. But I'm just imagining, you know, the rebellious victim of slavery pre-1865 who was put in solitary confinement, shackled, everything you just explained to break his spirit so that that attitude wouldn't spread among the rest of the victims. So, you know, my heart goes out to that young man, Max, and to your family. I asked him that, too. I asked him that straight up. I was like, have they broken you yet? And he said, no, they just, he didn't know the quote, but he said it in his own way. He said, they've just made me stronger. All these things that he had done to me has made me stronger. And I'm learning and I'm understanding. And when I get out, I am going to change everything. <laughs> so that's how he's looking at it. And this is a man that has, because he's a grown man now, who has uh, been tortured for over a year, 17 months, uh, who, who stayed so long in this little bitty room with no windows that he ended up with bed sores because there was nothing to do but lay there. So yeah, I, I appreciate the sentiment, Scotty, and I'm praying for him. I just hope that he holds on for another year. Justice made it out, and now J. Rue can make it out. So, um, yeah, Scotty, uh, that's that's been on my mind a lot lately. And just other things like the news that we're going to talk about today, watching the foolishness that's happening on a national level, like uh, bringing in Kim Kardashian to speak with the White House on prison reform. When I saw that, I wasn't really surprised because it is par for the course of what they're doing these days. Well, uh, in any case, let me uh, open up my my uh, program here for the day, and I think that we might have Sharon on the line now. So I want to yes, introduce I'm her here. and then bring her in so we can start. Yes, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> oh, okay. Welcome to the program, uh, Sharon. I was looking forward to today as we talked earlier. Um, let me give you a quick introduction. She is a North Carolina abolitionist, Quaker, Black Lives Matter activist, human rights activist, and tribal rights activist. Uh, her name is Sharon Smith, and her and I have worked together for the past 
man, since I started with New Abolitionist Radio, almost seven years now, six, seven years, I think, that we have worked together uh, online, but in real life. And she has facilitated a number of historical events, which we'll probably talk about throughout the program. Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Sharon. How are you, Brother Max? It's great to be here to talk to you. How are you, Brother Max? It's great to be here to talk to you. Um, Thank you. And my co-host here, you know, Sky Reed, of course, he's very familiar with you. I'm hearing a little bit of echo. Yeah, Max, if you're on the board, when you finish speaking so that we can prevent that echoing coming back to us, just mute yourself, and when you're ready to speak again, unmute yourself, because we're both getting feedback off of your line, but welcome in, uh, Sharon, it's a pleasure to talk talk to you, of course, I've known of your work for a very long time, yes. and I really appreciate it. Nice to talk to you, Scotty, yeah, nice I, to talk to you. I really appreciate um, your contributions to the abolitionist movement. Well, um... I don't feel like I've really done that much compared to you guys. Uh, but for me, doing the abolitionist work is just a no-brainer. I'm a counter-colonial activist. Um, and to me, you can't separate colonialism from white supremacy, from slavery. Uh, it's all the same ball of wax. So that's how I got involved in being an abolitionist. And I come from a Quaker background, um, and I'm a person of color, both black and Native American. I'm Saponi and Mohawk. My father's mother was Saponi. My father's father was Mohawk. And somewhere in there, there were some Africans. So I'm African-American, too. Um, But my mother's a New England Quaker. I was raised in New York City because when my parents were married in the early 50s, they were an interracial couple, and we had anti-miscegenation laws in Virginia, where my father was from, and the only place they could live together was Harlem. So I was raised in New York um, and got involved in doing anti-racism work among Quakers. That's been interesting, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Let's see. I've been disowned by the oldest Quaker meeting in this hemisphere for doing anti-racism work. There's an article about it that I posted on Facebook um, earlier today, um, and that's the story of, of, of Quakers who are sure they're not racist and how I got involved in challenging Quakers on their racism. It's quite a story. Um, and here in Asheville, I've been challenging Quakers on their racism and also doing some activism work in the community with Asheville Black Lives Matter. I think now, because of my years working with Quakers, trying to do anti-racism work, I'm probably the foremost expert on um, progressive white racists, Um, people who think of themselves as politically liberal or progressive, and are white and um, are still benefiting from colonialism and uh, the oppression of indigenous folk and African-American folk and pretty much everybody who is not white. Um, And there's a a deep, deep denial of reality um, 
I've done a lot of trainings, been to a lot of trainings. I've, you know, my experience with Quaker racism taught me to study systemic racism and critical race theory. Um, and uh, it's been a journey. It's been a journey. Do you have any questions yeah, for me? Because I, well, uh, I, I could... I was you about know. to say that uh, I think you might have coined a new term. I've never heard that. Um, but I what? have seen racism among white progressives, and I don't know if they're ignorant about it or they're playing ignorant about it, you know, but I'm, I, I don't cool. want to, and I know that's not what you were doing. I don't want to smear the entire progressive movement because they are involved in pushing some very progressive policies, but uh, sometimes, though, you know, that, that racism that has been instilled in them will come out. And I'm not always sure they're aware of it. So I never heard that term before, you know. Progressive uh, racism? No, progressive white racism. I don't think I've ever heard that before. So you might well, have coined a you new know, term. Well, you know, in the course of studying critical race theory, we it takes us to looking at our history. And, you know, the the bottom line is, the U.S. is a rogue, white supremacist, colonial settler state founded on genocide, theft, racialized slavery, rape, etc., etc., etc. And there's so much denial about it. And the fact that it was set up um, to help white people. The historical fact is that in exchange for the privileges of whiteness, White people or European settlers signed on to an alliance based on whiteness to murder Indians, move us off our land, enslave us, and keep down slave rebellions. That's what they signed up for. That's what the Second Amendment was about. Militia, put uh, arming militias. Those were settlers that you don't think that they would arm the slaves or the Indians, do you? This is all about white settlers terrorizing indigenous people, taking their land, displacing folks, moving them around the country, killing them, selling folks off into slavery in the Caribbean and North Africa and everywhere. Right. The finance, finance the purchase of African slaves. That's the history. The history. Yes, ma'am. That's the history. <laughs> okay. So white people agreed to this. They got their reasons, but you know, several generations later, they really think that they're entitled to oppress us and continue to ignore our, you know, our rights as human beings because that's what they've been conditioned to do. White supremacy is built into the structure of our society. White Hey, can can you guys hear me a little better now? Is there still an echo? I tried to make some adjustments. There's there's still an echo. I'm hearing, yeah, but uh, don't worry about it, Max. Yeah, just mute and unmute yourself, Max, when you want to jump in. Um, And, you know, I was just about to ask you to take over because you did invite Sharon. And we'll just work on this Saturday if you have time to figure out what the issue is. But we'll work through it. Go ahead, Max. We'll work 
Go ahead, man. Okay, uh, yeah, there were some questions I did want to ask you t- uh, tonight, Sharon. And there's a couple of issues that I want to talk about and also a chance to give you the floor to speak on things that we may not have mentioned. Uh, let's start with your history as a Quaker, and not just as a Quaker, but as a Quaker of color, something that is very rare, sure. comparatively speaking. You were born into Quakerism, right? Yes, my mother is a Quaker, and she raised me according to her Quaker beliefs. And she raised me according to her Quaker and, and, and that uh, automatically gives you inclusion, right? Not really. Not really. Go ahead, Sharon. <laughs> Don't let me interrupt. Not really. Not really. Okay, because I, I learned very quickly, following my mother's anti-racism work, somewhere in her 60s, okay, she decided, um, well, gee, you know, maybe God is calling me to do something about racism because I have all these brown relatives. So, um, hmm, let me not, let me frame it a different way. (laughs) Um, Essentially, she started doing Quaker anti-racism work and trying to talk with Quakers about racism, and she pulled me into it. I was doing other things, uh, working as an arts educator, working with children that are labeled uh, at risk, using improvisational theater as a developmental tool, um, doing great work. And my mom started dragging me to her meetings, um, the New England Yearly Meeting Working Party on Racism, the New England Yearly Meeting Racial, Social, and Economic Justice Committee. And she liked to have, you know, discussions about race, so she loved it when I would come. (laughs) Then... um, I moved to Cape Cod where my mother lived and got involved in Sandwich Monthly Meeting, which is the oldest Quaker meeting in the hemisphere. Um, They've been there since um, 1657, okay, and I started to attend worship. I didn't really attend Quaker worship much except for um, not until I was an adult. So I was raised by Quaker principles, but I didn't interact much with Quakers until I was an adult. I live in Western Massachusetts, going to UMass Amherst. Um, but I'm sidetracking here. Uh, my mom dragged me into her anti-racism work, and I noticed right away that there's a huge difference between being white and Quaker and speaking truth to power and being a person of color and speaking truth to power. So, you know, what initially happened was I knew there were gonna be problems when I moved to Cape Cod. So for the first two years that I was there, I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say much of anything. I was just as pleasant as I could be because I knew that we were gonna have problems (laughs) somewhere down the road. And I wanted them to have an opportunity to get to know me and like me before, you know, I had to call them out on their bullshit, basically. (laughs) So, sure enough, they liked me well enough that they asked me to be clerk of their Peace and Social Concerns Committee, which is the committee in every Quaker meeting that deals with political and social issues and um, drives what the meeting's um, response to those things is. So they asked me to be clerk of their committee the same month. Yeah, I've was seen. her to be clerk of their committee. What'd you say, Max? 
I have Hello? seen you uh, go through that process with people on a regular. Uh, on a, can you hear me? Yeah. I have seen you go through that process with a couple of people uh, personally. Oh yeah, I give them a chance. I give lots of chances. I remember when we when when I came down to visit you in Asheville to uh, speak, uh, be one of the speakers after viewing the uh, Mm thirteenth. That next day, we went to worship together, and I remember that I you introduced me to a gentleman who sits on the board of directors for the Southern Poverty Law Center, and we had Mm -hmm. a long conversation about slavery abolition, and he seemed Mm -hmm. to be. He seemed to be uh, very interested, but, you know, we found out, or at least I realized later that it was just lip service, because not Mm -hmm. long afterwards, the Southern Poverty Law Center came out with the description of black identity extremism, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is something that is in play right now, and they're prosecuting Mm -hmm. people for. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they say one thing and think another, and it's often lip service, and I'm sure you've dealt with that on many occasions. As like I said, fact, I am an expert. I want to hear from you about, Sharon. Yes. I'm an expert. Yes. Go ahead, yeah, One of the occasions I want to hear, hear about? about from you tonight before uh, we get off is the circumstances that occurred about a month ago uh, in Asheville where you went to a, uh, uh, a group meeting by people who uh-huh. were there, I guess, to educate others on racism. And you ended yeah. up getting freaking arrested at the yeah. spot because you yes. said something. Uh, it didn't matter what you said. You just said something at all. Right. Didn't matter what I said. I said something. That was so it. feel free to share that, too, if you like. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So there's a lot wrapped up in that. <laughs> Let me just try to give you the basic facts. Um, uh, I went to this racial equity training, a racial equity institute. Let's get their name right. Um, training in Asheville and the Racial Equity Institute is an outgrowth of the People's Institute. In other words, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond that I originally trained with um, trained the people who are doing training through the Racial Equity Institute also known as REI. So um, I'm already steeped in theory and I go to a training just to you know, be part of that community um, and see what they do differently, having already studied the same material. And I saw this friend of mine who's an activist in Asheville sitting in the back not saying anything. And I asked her, why are you sitting in the back not saying anything? And she said, well, because, you know, there's alumni are not supposed to say anything during the training. I said, what? <laughs> are you kidding me? She said, well, you know, that's just the policy. And I said then, I'm not obeying that policy. You know, (laughs) how many indigenous elders do they have that can tell them, you know, that perspective? Um, Or at least, you know, put that voice in the room. None. Okay. And um, experienced people who have more experience than the actual trainers in the room, most of them. Uh, in, in my first training, that's what I saw. I got into an argument with the lead trainer. First time I've ever been to a, a racial equity training or any kind of thing where they have an old white man as the lead trainer in the room. I never saw that before. I was already rattled. <laughs> so, um, second training, 
I had already said, I'm not Yeah, gonna, you're starting off on the wrong foot right there. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, I got into an argument with the guy because he was voicing some kind of theory about why 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 violence comes from white people because historically you know patriarchy and violence comes from eastern europe um the caucasus mountain region those guys are violent i mean and their culture is violent and they took over the world in different stages that's the history so he was putting forth this this theory about um the Iceman theory, you know, it's because they come from such a harsh environment that that's why they're, you know, they're such violent people. And I just said, that's bullshit. Eskimos live in the tundra and they ain't violent. <laughs> I don't buy it. Everybody in the room got upset because I was challenging the, the, the leader. Some white women complained. This is the first training now, not the one where I got arrested. <laughs> Some white women complained, you know, that they didn't like the way I was showing up in the room and that they felt intimidated or whatever. They pulled me aside and said, you know, in the hallway, I'm going to leave, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but somebody convinced me to stay. A bunch of people apologized. Apparently everybody in the room was you know, split along lines around whether they thought what I did was appropriate or not. <laughs> so I stayed. So the second training, REI um, likes to have you do more than one training, and they require that alumni do at least two trainings before they can move on to doing a second tier of training, and that's what I was curious about because they hadn't done one yet. So I went to the second training saying, let me get this under my belt so I can move on to the next phase. And I had already been triggered because um, the it was the Friday after the city council meeting where Asheville Black Lives Matter was calling for everybody that was involved in the criminal cover-up of the beating of Mr. Johnny Rush by an Asheville training officer and his trainees, um, you know, we were asking for the mayor to step down, the police chief, and everybody, because they were engaged in this cover-up, not to mention all the other, you know, issues related to a police officer keeping his job, a training officer training people to beat up on black folks that are walking home from work. That was also you know, around the time that one policeman pulled out, I think it was an AK-47 on a oh, teenage yeah. black guy. Uh -huh. uh -huh. Yeah, it was teenage boys, exactly. These officers are out of control here. Um, right. And, you know, we felt it was our responsibility to hold them accountable. You know, you don't cover up stuff like that. <laughs> and the story is outrageous. So... Some of the same people that were in that REI training were in the city council meeting, okay? I was pitching a fit when I got there to the city council meeting, or this was a Tuesday, because of the way they do it. First of all, they have the city council chambers as a small room, and they have police officers on all the ex exits, armed police officers at all the exits. You have to go, to go to city hall, you have to go through a security check before you can get into the lobby. 
But in the city council chambers on the second floor, they have armed officers on all the doors. They also have a series of paintings, like six huge paintings up near the ceiling that you really can't, you can miss them if you don't look up, that are celebrating the genocide of my people and the settling of, of Asheville. Wow. <laughs> I can imagine that. We've seen that across the country where, like, you can go to a courtroom and there's a Civil War uh, monument right there in the courtroom where people with the KKK are chasing down black people. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, there's paintings of, you know, actually killing Native folk. All right? But this is my home territory. Asheville is the Pony Land. It's not Cherokee. It's the Pony Land. It's Eastern right. Suwin territory. And they ran up off here. And the real history is they hired the Cherokees, basically gave them that spot, and you know, and made a slavery deal with them to capture us or kill us, um, you know. So they had a trade with the with the North Carolina colonists in in Indian slaves. That leads me to other questions, but before I ask it, I want to give uh, Scotty Reed an opportunity. Is there anything you would like to ask, Scotty? We actually have a caller. Uh, who would like okay. to ask a question? And we got Brother Jerry joining us from Tennessee. Brother Jerry, uh, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Did you have a question or comment for our guest tonight, Miss Sharon Smith? Jerry, you have to press star star to unmute yourself. He's already unmuted, but his oh, phone okay. might be muted. Jerry, okay, so. Um, since we can't hear him um it's just interesting that you bring that up i do i am i do have an ancestor one woman who was a cherokee who married a scottish colonist uh so that's uh-huh. that's in my bloodline and uh-huh. when i started researching you know the cherokee i did not like what i found and I, w- I and I frequently would speak out on on this issue because I just love history and more importantly I love the truth. And the truth of the matter mm-hmm. is, a it's lot true. of these Cherokees the were playing all about that, right? And and <laughs> a lot of the Cherokees were practicing slavery. They were enslaving yes. Africans as well. And yes, they and, were. And they then were. they also a number of them fought on the side of the Confederacy to keep slavery going. So. Yeah, I, yes, I, I just you know that, to that add there that. is a Cherokee Confederate battle flag. I've seen it. Wow. They proudly show it. If you hang out, you know, if you run into Cherokees in Tennessee and North Carolina, you will see they're proud of it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you know, are uh, the five allegedly civilized tribes that uh, basically kowtowed down to the uh, white supremacists and the colonialists, I guess, for survival's sake, maybe some of them just because, uh, you know, they got used to certain things that came with colonialism. In any case, not, they didn't speak for all the tribes. There was, I, I no. don't know the, the exact no, number of tribes right now, but there was like no. six or 700 plus tribes right now. And some yeah. of those tribes were enslaved themselves because there were Native American slaves as well as African American slaves. Exactly, and that's why you will rarely meet an African-American who does not have some Native ancestry. Right, like I think we mentioned last week, the Seminole tribe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, is, uh, there's, you know, the whole Southeast 
okay, uh, the whole East Coast, the mm-hmm. Southeast, and you know, from from Maine all the way down through Florida, you know, we're all Black Indians, and the, we are the ones that are not recognized because when you mix, you know, when in the in the in the the cross between blood quantum uh, requirements and the one drop rule, we get lost. Man, they take the one drop <laughs> rule to new levels there with Native experience. Yes, they do. They do. I mean, yeah. you know, but, but that's, that's part of the divide and rule, the colonial construct, you know. I mean, colonialism is, you know, based on dispossession. Okay, we all experience that if we're a person of color, whether we were, you know, taken out of our homeland and brought to someplace strange and different, or whether we were moved off of our territory, you know, because somebody else wanted it. Dependence, and dependence is something that is created. So the reason they killed all the buffalo was so that the the Lakota people would have no source of food. They wouldn't be able to provide for themselves, and they would have to be dependent on the government. So dependence is a feature of colonialism, and I'm sure you can think of modern versions of this, like, you know, with the welfare state and whatnot. Um, And oppression, repression, is a feature of colonialism. You know, Sharon, um, I do another program, well, really it's a podcast. Every once in a while I do a live uh, program, but I do a Memorial Day or Decoration Day uh, program Uh every year. Now, Usually what I will focus on is the uh, African-American revolutionary soldiers and and the black union, African-American union soldiers who put the Uh South down. I mean, the USA wouldn't exist, you know, if not for those soldiers, you know, joining joining the war, which Lincoln had prevented them from joining early on and why they were losing. But this year I decided to because I was like look y'all thanking people for y'all recognizing people who died in service in the United States military but was they really fighting for liberty and freedom like y'all saying and so you know I pulled up some information to look at all the wars going back to the colonial period or or the beginning of the United States of America incorporated but um, and I looked at all the wars and I and I found and, you know, this is in my last podcast that most of the wars, I would dare say 75 percent of the wars that the U.S. military has fought has been against domestically here on this continent against the aboriginal Native Americans. So, you know, it's just if we right. if we're going to remember which memorial means, remember, let's remember it all. And what the what the vast majority of them were really fighting for, and why they lost their lives. Right, right, right. Well, you know the what the reason where where we are now, okay, is because we've been played against each other, and that was a deliberate policy, or a set of policies that were put in place to divide us against one another. But there are famous historical alliances between Africans and Natives. Okay? The, the, is, is that the reason they started passing racial purity laws? Okay? Anti-miscegenation laws, one-drop rule versus the admixture of blood or blood quantum, 
That was to keep us separated from one another and, and pitted against one another. And if we want to get past this point in history, we got to start looking at the reality. And if you look at the stats now for police brutality, institutional violence, prison slavery by race, missing and murdered cases, poverty, etc., black and Indian folk are still running neck and neck, still. Yeah, and, and, this country, and, and this country is founded on our oppression and repression. So we need to stop seeking acceptance among people who benefit from our oppression and reforge those historic alliances with one another. That would be the only way that we can get control of the narrative, the processes, and the resources, and all that denial, you know, that, that, that holds white supremacy in place. Hmm. I'm just saying. Oh, no, I, I hear you, and I know that you are an expert on these subjects, constantly studying and learning. Uh, you just recommended at least one book to me today, and you were—I I believe it's about once a week you recommend a, a book to me. Uh, I'm on, yeah, to yeah, yeah, I'm on it. I'm on mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So, so to understand the history of Quakers and African Americans, there's a book that I highly recommend called "Fit for Freedom, Not for Friendship." Quakers, African Americans, and the Myth of Racial Justice by Donna McDaniel and Vanessa July. Vanessa July is a black Quaker. Donna McDaniel is a white Quaker. Um, and it is, you know, really telling about Quakers and how they came to the colonies. I mean, they're still colonial settlers, right? William Penn accepted a land grant from the King of England. Um, and it wasn't the King's land to give. You know, so one of the reasons Quakers hate me so much is because I tell the truth, you know, like Sojourner Truth. I'm a poor, itinerant, anti-racism Quaker minister. That's who I am, okay? I was raised a Quaker. I see it from, from, from all of my ancestors, white, black, and Indian. You know, I feel the call to continue to challenge them on their racism. Because, you know, they like to talk about peace and love and we're all family and brotherhood and whatnot until they become uncomfortable and have to face the truth. White supremacy is maintained by denial, by controlling the narrative, the processes, and the resources, and by good people obeying unjust rules, um, policies, procedures, and laws. The narrative, the processes, and the uh, what was it? The narrative, the resources, and the process. Um, White supremacy is maintained Mm -hmm. by denial or silence, the silence of complicity, and by controlling the narrative or the press or whatever the story is about whatever. Okay, the processes, and that includes court and legal stuff. And the resources. White people control the planet's resources. I don't care if you live in an all-black country, white people still control the resources. I was thinking recently about some of these things. You know, I'm always thinking to some degree, but in this one in particular, and I agree with you that controlling those things is how they manage to do all of that. But there also is another angle that's involved, and that's where the normal person has to allow crimes against humanity to happen in front of their faces and to be able to justify that as something that's being done for the greater good. 
And I guess the narrative is what controls that type of uh, mentality where you can see these things occur and still think that it is somehow justified. Yeah, well, that's the pathology of whiteness, okay? Because there has to be a certain amount of denial in order for them to still continue to believe, you know, this fiction that they created. The border is an imaginary construct. Race is an imaginary construct. But they enforce reality, the reality they created, because through violence, there is no other way. The reason we live in the most violent society on the planet is because it was set up to keep us down and to repress us and to colonize us. The only way we can decolonize ourselves or undo racism and get control of the narrative, the processes, and the resources is to challenge the narrative, challenge the processes, and challenge, you know, and, and demand, you know, our share, our fair human share of the resources. Well, there is no other way. <laughs> I saw something recently, Sharon, and Scotty, I don't know if you saw it or not. And I, I put it on New Abolitionist Radio earlier today. It was from a few years ago where they were having sort of a scared straight program going on. And they had this little nine-year-old kid who was about waist high, just slightly over waist high to the guards around him. And they brought him in uh, to this prison and had the prisoners uh, threaten him and uh, reach for him and yell and scream at him. Uh, And they did this to this nine-year-old black child. Because he uh, stole something from his mother and he wouldn't listen to his parents' direction. And the people that have shared it, on a couple of them, I've seen the question arise, is this going too far? And that brings me to my point about it all. If you're asking, if taking a nine-year-old black child and offering him like bait to prisoners to scare the living daylights out of him, like to literally terrorize this child, then the problem is you, because you shouldn't be asking that. No, it's not all right. No, it's, right. It's, it's certainly going too far. You were terrorizing right. a child, and yes, well, his weight okay. makes a difference. If they had done that to a little white boy, the whole goddamn country would be in an uproar. Yes, and that's that blindness. It's that blindness. It's a studied blindness. It's an entrenched indifference that is it's something that is is bred into and conditioned into white people. They really do believe that they are the center of the universe. Now, I know this better than anybody because I came through a white lady's womb. I mean, I know about this stuff intimately, okay? They really do believe that they are the standard of being. And if you you if you don't fit that standard, or if you're like me, you know, born rebellious, (laughs) <laughs> born defiant <laughs> That's the truth <laughs> I'm born defiant <laughs> um, <laughs> And then I got touched You know by the spirit Oh God You know I mean you know Terrible things were bound to happen <laughs> so, I've been thrown out of some of the best places I mean I was put out of graduate school In Richmond for For, for for political reasons, it was about racism and counter-colonial this and that. You know, they just couldn't tolerate having an intelligent black woman challenge their narrative. It was in the school of the arts. Craziness, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. But, Cheryl, but, yeah. Hey. Yeah. Go ahead. Go, you go we, ahead. 
we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, I do have a question, And man. I want to make sure that we give a chance for you to speak on issues that you want to speak on personally. I also want to open up the lines if anyone has any questions. But before I do that, I would like to uh, recall a few times that you and I uh, have uh, been together that, and made abolitionist history. Uh, one time, if I, when we first uh, started communicating, I was trying to find a way to reach out to the churches. And Scotty and I have talked about this on the program many times. We've been reaching out to the organized churches to support the abolitionist movement, and we weren't doing too well with it for some reason. In any case, you uh, were one of the first people representing what you might call a church to step forward and say, I'm here. And you facilitated a phone call where I was invited to participate in, and it was a call among Quakers who were involved with the prison industry in one form or another. So on this call were prosecutors, judges, uh-huh. prison uh-huh. guards, politicians. I mean, I was surprised at the depth of involvement the Quakers had in the prison system. One preacher who was there, one minister said that he uh, ministers to several dozen prisons so he could get messages to all these different prisons. And I talked that day about modern slavery and human trafficking, and I believe it was the first time since the 1800s that a slavery abolitionist and Quakers got together to have that discussion about that particular topic. So that was the one first time. The other time was when we were in Columbia, South Carolina, and the races came down there to, uh, you know, do what these KKK people do. And uh, we organized a uh, a counter event where we brought all these organizations together. And we knew that this was going to be a, a horrifying circumstance. We, we just knew what was going to happen. So we were looking for people to come as witnesses, uh, human rights witnesses. And you referred me to uh, uh, Sarah, and uh, I believe it was uh, Jebediah, or is it, uh, what was his brother's name? <laughs> Josiah or Jebediah? I think it was Josiah. In any case, those two came as witnesses, and they saw everything. The hundreds of police fully armed, the military gear, the brutality, uh, the attempted killings that were going on there, and they were uh, shocked to their core. And I believe that day they became abolitionists. So they were like the third Quaker abolitionist, second and third that came along because of you. Uh, that was amazing. And then, well, then, uh, yeah, I, I, I am an uh, what's a good what's a way to describe it? An infamous Quaker. I'm well known in Quaker circles. <laughs> yeah. Mostly I'm hated and despised and reviled, um, but they I do have a few followers, and there are mostly people who are doing anti-racism work or criminal justice work, and Quakers have a long history with the criminal injustice system. Do you know it was the Quakers that um, invented solitary confinement? Yes. Yes, I, I, I knew uh, that, and I actually ask? was going to, that was going to be my question to you, Sharon, was if the, if you were aware of that history, although I would suspect that you are aware of that history, but, you know, we were just talking about Max's sons spending 17 uh-huh. months in solitary confinement uh-huh. and doing our, uh, uh-huh. d- doing our research on prison slavery. You know, I did come across the information that the Quakers thought solitary confinement was a way for prisoners to self-reflect on what they had done and, and how they could make penance. Well, right. it wasn't actually meant for everybody. It was meant for white prisoners because the prisons were mostly white at that time, 90% white. 
So they had these white people or Europeans who would come in and uh, pay penance and study the Bible in solitary confinement, and they thought that would help them to be better people. But that wasn't how it applied to black people when in 1866 and 18, from 1866 to 1868, the prisons went from 90% white to 90% black with the advent of convict leasing. Oh, oh, oh. Well, if we have a little time left and there's nobody else that wants to talk, there's, I'd like to read a poem. Oh, well, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm a poet. Of, we, you and I have done poetry together before at human rights conferences. So, yes, please. Right. And you've heard this one before, but I think it's totally appropriate. Um, I'm trying to get it to come up on my screen. Here we go. It's called When I'm Still. Um, and I wrote this for my Quaker friends who sit in silent worship waiting upon the Lord. When I am still, I hear the voice of my grandmothers in this land. They have asked me to speak to you, to speak to you about their concerns. They want to know why you say you believe in one thing and do another. They want to know how you can speak of equality when all of the people do not have a safe place to sleep or full bellies. They want to know how you can speak of justice when the most dangerous of criminals with the deadliest of weapons lead your nation. They want to know how you can speak of integrity after so many millions of us have been sold into slavery to raise capital for investment or slaughtered to make room for your so-called civilization. Yes, I said to my grandmother, yes, I have spoken of these concerns to many people, just as you have asked. I have spoken with them about these concerns. I have spoken with them and they say... They say they cannot hear this truth until I learn to speak to them with love. They say my truth is hurting them. Oh, my grandmother say. Oh. You know, what is it about the Yangi Washichu that they must always dominate the conversation with talk of love and peace while the rest of us are crying out for justice? Did they love us when our lands were taken, our people scattered like corn husks in the wind? Do they love you, granddaughter, while they keep your ancestral inheritance for themselves? Must they humiliate us also by mocking our pain, by denying the truth, while they continue to heap trash upon our bones? When I am still, I hear the voice of my grandmothers in this land. They say, we support you, beloved granddaughter, for seeking the truth of our hearts. Do not blame yourself. For that responsibility does not belong to you, but to the Yangi Washichu. It is theirs alone. When I am still, I hear the voice of my grandmothers in this land. Aho. Aho. <laughs> Got the snap going on here, man. Just sitting here with tribe <laughs> listening to it. Thank you for sharing that poetry with us and the thoughts behind it. Um, it is indeed not your fault. Well, no, um, I know, I know. <laughs> I'd like to see if anybody has any questions, uh, and then give you a chance to say whatever you want to say uh, before we conclude. So, if there's anyone on the line now, would be a good time to have your comments or questions ready. Uh, if you're on the uberconference.com page, just press star star to unmute yourself. And if you're on your cell phone, make sure you unmute your cell phone. So, let me take a look 
at the board. Well, I'm not on the board, so I won't be able to see it. Scotty, if there's anybody there? Yes, we have a caller from area code 401. Thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. Do you have a question or comment for our guest tonight? Yeah, hey, Scotty and Max and Sharon. It's J9 from Rhode hey, Island. J-9. How are everyone tonight? Hey, Joe. Welcome home. Oh, nothing much. Um, everything, nothing, you know, the typical. Um, you know, I, you know, followed uh, Sharon's story since I heard it because it felt uh, very familiar to a lot of the, I guess we would call it anti-racism work. Um, and, you know... Uh, what's happening up here with the work that I was doing um, with my uh, co-leader in this organization. And my question for Sharon, or maybe a little bit of advice is the minute when you're dealing with, I can't remember the word you used for like liberals. You used some really great word and I can't remember it. Progressive Um, white racism. Yes. Yes. I was like, Oh my gosh, that's perfect. That makes sense. How do you ingratiate yourself first and then, like, the pushback? Because I um, was kind of in charge of being, like, the white counterpoint to kind of, like, push back to the other white people. And they were so upset with my pushback that I actually kind of, like, let go of that particular kind of role, I guess. And I have yet to find a way to call a thing a thing with that particular group of people who feel that they are so um, politically in the know and they've gone to all the trainings and they have all the certifications and this that, and the other. Like, how do you ingratiate yourself with them or do you um, in order to get them well, to suspend no, their belief for a minute? No, 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 no. Ingratiating would be the wrong word. Okay. Okay, the wrong word. <clears throat> you know, if you stand in the truth, and you speak the truth boldly and clearly, people are going to react anyway because there's that denial factor. You know, white, progressive white people want to believe in themselves as good human beings, and their concept of what racism and colonialism are are personal. So they, most of them have no understanding of the systemic nature of the racial construct and the racial power arrangement. So if I say something that makes them feel uncomfortable, they're going to say, why are you hating? Why are you attacking me? I love you. <laughs> you know, it happens all the time, right? Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But when you frame it in terms of this is a construct, this is a social construct, white people are culturally addicted to exploitation and control. They cannot help it. That's a cultural thing. That's something they've yeah. learned. It's a conditioning. And there is no way to challenge that without people getting upset. Yeah. Was, yeah. No, I, yeah. <laughs> getting okay kicked out of places is a good thing. <laughs> I got kicked out. You listen, oldest Quaker meeting in the hemisphere, graduate school of the arts. I'm about to be kicked out of Asheville soon. Okay. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, yeah. And, I, okay. and I'm from um, one of the oldest colonial 
towns. Well, Newport, Rhode Island is a super, super colony. Yeah, um, Newport, and, Rhode Island is a slave trading, a Quaker slave yeah, trading port. Yeah, one of the first. So, so it's trying. It's 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 so interesting to try to have conversations with people when they don't even kind of like they take it so personal all the time. So well, they're gonna take it personally but, because. They don't want to be reminded of their culpability or that they still benefit from all that carnage. Yeah. I'm homeless. I'm an indigenous woman, homeless. I got no place to call home in my own ancestral homeland. Ain't that something? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a matter of because fact, Because black people have been moved you. off of their land. And <laughs> white folks. Quakers don't even want to, I mean, I told them that their meeting house is literally on my ancestral property and that they should pay me rent. And if they would pay me for my land, then I wouldn't be homeless. I would have the money to rent someplace. Who can afford rent? Man, I'm about ready to go to every police station I can. You know what? You are my ancestral land. You should be paying me rent, damn it. Matter of fact, I demand rent right now. Yeah, I love it. Do it again. (laughs) <laughs> the the Quaker lady who's putting me out of her house, her house is on my ancestral land. Woo! Mm-hmm. Um, it if, is. If I may Literally. interject real quick, um, we are overdue for our station identification break, so okay. if I can take <laughs> take this quick station right. identification well, we're break. We're going to take this uh, station identification break, and when we come back on the other side, uh, we'll give you the opportunity to just say whatever it is you want to say. Uh, and also to uh, mention the fundraiser that's going on, which you just talked about. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on the Black Talk Radio Network dot com with uh, Scotty Reed, myself, Max Parthas, and today's guest Sharon Smith. We'll be right back. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for podcasts and live program scheduling. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio here with Scotty Reed and today's guest, Sharon Smith. Thank you for the question, by the way, J9. We appreciate that. Hopefully uh, you got the answer you were looking for. Indeed. Uh, kind of reminds oh, yes. me. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we do kinda have another call, man. Uh, white moderate that he talked about. In any mm-hmm. case, uh, we understand, as you just said, that at this point in time, you really don't have a secure home. You have nowhere, as you said, to call your home. And you are trying to rectify that at this time. You, along with some of the leadership in the Black Lives Matter Asheville, are working together, and like Dolores, for instance, shout out to Dolores, yeah. are working Dolores. together to try shout to get out to some my girl Dolores. Uh, We're going to provide the link to a fundraiser for Sharon Smith. Be sure that uh, you donate if you're able to at all. Uh, could you tell us uh, anything about that and also any comments that you want to leave our audience with? Well, Max, before, yeah. I, I'm sorry, um, Sharon. Sharon, I'm sorry. Max, we do have another caller, um, and I have posted the link to the fundraiser in the program description. So if you're listening live, it's right there. Um, if you're listening later on podcasts, it's, it's right there in the description. So please give what you can. Uh, Sharon, go ahead, but we do have another uh, caller. Yeah, I'll make it quick. I'll make it quick. So there's a concept called grassroots reparation, right? Um, so the definition of grassroots reparations is um, being generous, um, giving according to your capacity, 
um, without worrying about waiting for an act of Congress or whether or not somebody you think someone is deserving. You know, reparations are due, and if you are in a, in a position to give in any capacity, you should. Um, no questions asked. Um, if you're white and you're, you know, middle class or whatever you are, you are benefiting from, 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 from genocide, slavery, theft, um, all kinds of human rights violations and, and crimes against humanity to maintain your standard of living. Think of it in those terms. And there are many of us out here who are still suffering from the impact of that. Me, myself, I'm a poor itinerant anti-racism Quaker minister. They won't even acknowledge my ministry, so I can't raise funds. And now I'm being put out in the street by a Quaker woman who was in support of my ministry, but now she wants her house back because my trauma, watching me be traumatized, is traumatizing her and she just can't stand it anymore. And that's the bottom line. So if you can give, just give grassroots reparation. Thanks. Well, um, before we go to our caller, well, Sharon, I did not know that was how you were framing the fundraiser, but please accept the small donation that I gave you on I'm making that donation in the name of my colonial ancestor who also got a land grant from the king. So there you go. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Scotty. You're Thank welcome. You. Um, 646, I think I know who this is. This is either Tag or Ross. I think it's Ross, but uh, we got a caller from the New York area. Please go ahead with your question or comment. Peace, Peace, Scotty. Peace, Brother Max. And peace to you, Sister Sharon. And uh, great looks on sharing uh, with us tonight and, and for all of your work. It's certainly appreciated. Thank you. Peace tag, thanks. No question. Just been a completely vibrant discussion. And, you know, the the really <clears throat> there's more more um to ask than clearly there's time for, but just to kind of maybe consolidate one off of some of what you shared tonight, I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit from your um, from what you have gleaned over the years and from just like observation, uh, the role and importance of sincere study of the actual white history, the actual history of those identified as white uh, here particularly, um, but elsewhere as well, but on the part of those identified as white, the the importance of that process and really reckoning with the genuine history of that development? I'm not sure what, okay, um, colonial construct, is that what you're talking about? The doctrine of discovery, where Europeans got the idea that they were entitled to everybody's stuff um, and to use us in any way they could in order to to enrich themselves, to prey upon us, essentially, P-R-E-Y. Um, is that what you want to, me to talk about? Uh, any, anywhere that, that that question, you know, brings you, it just, it seems to me that you, you, you know, spoke to some of that history and, you know, its importance in your counter-colonial and anti-racist work 
and just you know the the fact of these uh racist white progressives that you pointed out etc you know um if perhaps a true reckoning with those developments with that long standing history you know um what kind of role might that play in the larger you know process of uh counter colonial or anti imperial or anti racist work I'm not sure if you're asking me a question or not. Can you be a little clearer? Definitely. What do you really want to know? What do you really want to know? I guess I was looking to see if maybe uh, you could elaborate on some of um, or, or share a bit more about what you found to be useful as regards counter racism. So I'm doing racism. Okay, I can, I can work with that. I can work with that. What's useful? Because you know, studying the way racism is constructed, I mean, it's based on a, a, a spurious notion that Europeans are superior and that the rest of us are not human. All our social systems are designed around that model of thinking. In order for us to really dismantle racism in our society and colonialism, we have to go back to the founding documents, re-examine them, and, 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 you know, rip them up and start all over. I mean, in the Declaration of Independence, my people are called merciless savages. Many people know about the three-fifths compromise, but our whole country's history is based on a colonial construct of white supremacy. That's why I said that the United States is a rogue, white supremacist, colonial settler state founded on genocide, slavery, rape, um, theft, and all manner of unspeakable atrocities in order to maintain control and to exploit and to dominate. That's what white supremacy is, and all our founding documents and our history prove it. So, you know, what I consistently encounter, I speak the truth. I do the research and I speak the truth. And I speak the truth not only from the history, but also from my own personal experience. And what I usually get from liberal white people who don't want to be racist, who think that they're not racist, and who just don't even know what the definition of racism is, um, is a lot of pushback around the facts and the truth. You know, when you point out the statistics about, you know, the racial power arrangement, the economic statistics about the wealth of white people versus the wealth of any other person of color, I mean, these are facts. White people are really good at facts. They're really good at documenting things. But if the facts turn out to be something that they don't want to accept, they really do believe that they have the power to change the narrative. So you get into arguments with liberal white people who are not racist because they're Buddhists or pacifists or whatever they are. I've actually had arguments with Quakers about 
whether or not the word racism should be used and should we find some other language because, you know, the word racism is divisive. And race is, you know, a misnomer. It's not really a scientific reality. I mean, white people have the power to define reality. And the only reason that power exists among white people is because they have this alliance based on the skin color that is backed up by organized violence. The only way the system is maintained is through violence and repression. Hmm. So any pacifist who says that they're not benefiting from that is full of shit. Their lifestyle is based on repression and racialized violence. Does that answer your question, Tag? You know, it it, it does, and I, I really appreciate the uh, response. I, I think I may have worded it uh, in a way that wasn't as clear as I would have liked it to be, but I appreciate the thorough response. Thank you. Indeed. Well, uh, Max. Scott, do you have any final uh, yes, questions? Or? I do have one final question, and this just goes back to something that you spoke of earlier Sharon, when you were talking about the intersectionality of, of white supremacy and slavery, and there was a third caveat that you added, or a third point that you added. Can you remind me what that was? Intersection of the... Uh, I was talking about an, an intersection between blood quantum uh, right, right. requirements and the one-drop rule. Is that what you mean? Um, no, but it, it's not important. Let me um, let me frame it this way. Okay. We there. I'm a part. Well, I, I don't know if it's really I'm a part of, but I do help facilitate um, uh, what's known as a counter racist movement. There is a very important program and radio station on the Black Talk Radio Network program called The Context of White Supremacy. That was the first program. Slash yeah, in, yeah, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I am. yeah, I they're am. the first ones <laughs> to join, you know, Black Talk Radio Network and come over and put, you know, produce their media through us. But uh-huh. doing my research, I don't think that people understand, and I want to know if it lines up with your research, that the construct of white supremacy came about on this continent to continue slavery because of things like Bacon's Rebellion. So I say that white supremacy came out of slavery to keep slavery going to race-based slavery. Yes, yes, it did. It was in the U.S. in the Virginia colony. Well, actually, it started in the Caribbean, in Barbados, um, and the Caribbean islands. Like you said earlier, or referred to earlier, all the European powers in the 15th and 16th um, century, 16th and 17th century, were competing with one another for who, over who was going to control the, the trade in slaves. Um, and there were many wars fought, like the, you know, the Spanish Armada, that was over slavery. Um, and Queen Elizabeth's um, privateers, they're basically just pirates with the sanction of the crown um, and what they were doing was stealing slaves from the Spanish going across the Atlantic and reselling them. I mean it was many of those Europeans war, wars were about who was going to control the trade in slaves. 
Yeah, that's where the wealth for these nations came from. Right, exactly right. And but you know the story that's not told is how you know not only Africans were enslaved, but Native Americans were enslaved, and um, Southeast Asians were enslaved also. The Philippines, they were trying to get into the China, but China, you know, rebuffed them. The opium wars were all about Brit- the the European powers trying to get con- colonial control over China. Mm-hmm. You know. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sharon, real real quick though, specifically, let me let me point to, and you mentioned the Virginia colonies because during my uh-huh. research, and I'm just talking about on this continent right here, and you mentioned the Second Amendment. Well, yes. the first gun control legislation was passed was to take guns not only to arm the militias and what have you but this was during the Virginia colony uh, colonial history is that they prohibited free black people from owning firearms because of the fear that they so to me that you know that just points to white supremacy codes being put in place to ensure the continuance of slavery Yes, and long before the Declaration of Independence, yes, the Virginia, the Maryland, and the Carolina colonies were already arming white men, and that's part of that that unholy deal that that, uh, white settlers agreed to uh, police us and enslave us um, in exchange for Indian land and um, inclusion in, in, in in the privileges of whiteness. And that's part of it. So, so that was happening long before the Second Amendment was written. The Second Amendment was just codifying it, but it had been going on a long time. Max, yes, sir. Um, I would like to give you the opportunity to make some final comments and leave our message, our audience, with the message to think about. But before uh, that happens, I would like to uh, talk about, or at least have you reiterate to our audience something that you and I discussed about intersectionality with uh, Native tribes and African-Americans or children of the diasporas here in the United States who many are looking towards the five-state solution as a way to solve some of the major problems and to consolidate uh, power and resources and talents. And uh, you and I talked about that, and you said that... uh, Well, actually, I'll leave it to you to tell them. Well... I mean, there has to be some solution, and, you know, if we're really going to talk about justice, we need to talk about um, land reform, however that's going to look as another topic, and economic restructuring, you know, because, I mean, poverty is something that's designed, and it can be fixed. <laughs> and now what we have is racialized poverty and dependence, and usury and some other things that can be fixed but it's not going to be fixed without some serious restructuring and one of the ways to think about restructuring would be to provide you know a five state area which was I think was chosen because of the um, density of African Americans in that area and those were the, the, the cotton slave states right right yeah. yes we're talking yes. about uh, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, yes. South Carolina, and Louisiana. 
Yeah, for some reason, North Carolina is not in it, and neither is Virginia, but whatever. And it yeah. seems like a great idea, except that there are indigenous people there, too. And the way to go about that diplomatically would be, like I said, to reforge those ancient alliances between African Americans and Native Americans, because most of those indigenous folk in those states are black indigenous people anyway to bring them into the, to it as a collaboration and that would be the appropriate thing to do okay well uh, definitely take that into consideration and for those listening please do so as well any final comments Sharon What'd you say? Any final comments to leave our audience with? I want to recommend this book, um, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. It will explain everything that Scotty was talking about. Okay, well, if you tag me with it, I'll put it on our page as well. So just tag me with it, and uh, I'll see if I can get a hold of it as well. Yes, great book. Um, It talks about the colonial militias and how early they started, long before the Second Amendment, but what the Second Amendment, the intent of the whole thing was. And it was essentially, you know, empowering white militias to clear the land of Indians by whatever means were necessary and to keep slave rebellions down because you don't think that we accepted slavery easily. Right. At one point here in South Carolina, every citizen was expected to own a firearm to be called on to uh, stop runaway slaves at any time. Every white citizen. Every white citizen. Yeah, well, runaway well, slaves were white citizens. That's that. sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. free, free blacks either didn't exist or couldn't have guns. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the program tonight. Uh, our relationship is going to continue for many years to come, I'm sure, and we'll have great successes along the way. I want you to come back another time because I also want you to discuss the Asheville Land Trust that you've been a part of. But unfortunately, tonight, we don't have the time for it. So please uh, come back and share with us again at another date. we got a lot to talk about. Thank you, Sharon. And uh, we appreciate your time here tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. All right. We are, uh, we'll we'll, uh, conclude with the interview. And we're going to get on a couple of uh, uh, stories that we want to get out before the night is over. Well, uh, real quick, I mean, it's Max. Not the most... Yes, Scotty? Uh, real quick, we got about five minutes before the break, and we have a new caller on the line calling in from a, a block number. You have unmuted yourself, so that's the signal that you will have a question or a comment. Um, I'm sorry our interview is over with Sharon if you wanted to ask her a question, but please go ahead. What's on your mind? Do you have a pen? Uh, yes. Okay, I normally don't do this, but I've been trying to connect with you for over a year. So my cell phone number is 302-399-6858. You can share that with Otis. This is Jay Skills. Okay, I got 302-399. What's the last four? 6858. 6858. Yes, 6858. All right, I got you, Jay Skills. I would appreciate if you could give me a call tonight because there's quite a bit of conversation I would like to have with you if you are 
time permits, I'm up until six in the morning. Um, it would not be per, it would not That's permit okay. me tonight. You don't but have to tomorrow. explain it on the air. Whenever yeah. you get a chance. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll definitely do yeah. that, uh, Jay Skills. Yeah. So I did listen to the entire show, and I'm not even going to get into you know what's truth or what's not or anything else. Uh, I will just simply say it's an interesting show. Well, it was an interesting show, an interesting commentary. Thank you. And I, I, I just feel that, you know, accuracy is more important than rhetoric. And what I mean by that is, like, for instance, you know, I, I've heard on the past four or five shows that I've listened to where, you know, people go back to 1863 or 1866 or 1865 where they talk about the black codes, whoever they may be as far as your guest on the show started out as the black laws depending on your research, it will show from 1812 to 1818 in the state of Illinois the other thing So are you saying, Jay Skills, we can't find facts on the internet because a lot of this information is in books and people just put it on the internet? And speaking of, we brought up Virginia slave codes. Specifically, I was speaking of the Virginia slave codes of 1705, which introduced white supremacy and gun laws in that colony where free black colonists were prohibited from owning firearms and it also uh, uh, codified the militias. 
So that you it know, it goes way. It goes way before that. But what I am saying is this: Can I ask you? Are you talking about John Hawkins when you asked about fifteen fifty five? Yes, and we can go a little bit further than that. Okay, I'm from Virginia. I'll get your number from Scotty, and we can have that because I don't want to hold up the rest of Matt's show. Neither, neither do I. Neither yeah, do we, I. But what? I, and, and Scotty, in, in answer to your question. Right when I say, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase it. You said that, or at least you asked me the question of the information that you're getting from the internet is not factual. Not all of it is because you know, like for instance, if you had nothing better to do with your time and you you know did something, you looked something up and you went to Wikipedia, you can make changes to the information without having access to the person's account that started it as far as what you want to be assumed as factual or not. Right. In Wikipedia, as I tell people, and I'm a member, I'm not an active member, but I'm a member of Wikipedia, and I have wit in there and changed things, like, for example, them leaving out the exception clause in the 13th Amendment and incorrectly stating, but they always change change it back. But like I tell people, Wikipedia, it, it should have its sources, and you can look up the sources that they're using. It does have a bibliography, but look, I don't want to get sidetracked. We only got a I Neither do I. I just wanted to give you my number, so hopefully you wrote it down, and I, I know Otis wanted to speak to me, and I, again... I wasn't calling in like I did last week. I wasn't calling in to like interrupt your show, but I did want to have a, a direct conversation with you. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Jay Skills. I'll try to get in contact with you tomorrow. I just have another show to broadcast tonight, and it'll be midnight and time for me to get some rest. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right, Jay Skills. We'll talk to you. Uh, Max. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Max. All right. Thanks, uh, uh, Jay. I'll talk to you soon, man. Right, right. So we're going to take our break then, uh, Scotty, and then come back with our, our, our quick couple of stories and our final segments. Is that how we're going to do it? Yes. And, Max, if we could, could I share the audio from Sister Genevieve that's running for district attorney in San Diego? Because that goes back to our guest last week, Christopher Scott, uh, coming on and saying how important, you know, that elected position is in your county. And, you know, we've had her, we've highlighted her before, but she came out with what I thought was an important message that I would like to play. So if we can include that after the break. Okay. Uh, yeah, we can do that. I'm a supporter of hers as well. She's one of the few people who are talking about uh, the 13th Amendment and modern day slavery. And she's a candidate for district attorney. In any case, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll get to those uh, topics on the other side of this message. Now I'm not a writer. Okay. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Um, Scotty, you said you wanted to play a clip uh, from uh, Genevieve. What is her last name? Uh, I don't remember right off the top I, of my I'm head. I'm pulling uh, it up now. I posted it in the chat earlier 
in the program. Let me find it right quick. Um, usually I have a hard time remembering her first name. Okay, uh, Genevieve Jones Wright. And right, her, Jones Wright. Yeah, her yes. Twitter is, and I posted it in the chat room. I'll post it again, her entire message from the tweet, but it's a video that I want people uh, to hear. And if you're in the San Diego area, I know we do have some abolitionists in that area. This is Shout a, out to Layla Aziz. Yes, this is a woman that you need to get behind and turn out to vote for. But this is what she wrote to wrote today, Max. She said, I've said since day one that if you're working for or are in any way affiliated with private prisons, I do not want your money. I challenge my opponent to do the same and demand the San Diego GOP return money to GEO, a private prison that operates in San Diego and all over the world. So let me open up uh, the video so that we can uh, hear her in her her uh, own voice. So again, her Twitter profile is Jones Wright, and you spell the last name W R I G H T for the number four D A. So that's Jones Wright for D A. That's her Twitter profile. So I got the video up. Let me go ahead and uh, start it from the beginning. I have said and I've dim- Wait a minute. Hi, everyone. Genevieve Jones right here, your next district attorney. With six more days left until the election, I am issuing a challenge to our opponent. From day one, I have said and I've demonstrated that I will not stand with private or for-profit prisons. When you donate to my campaign, you must check a box that says you are not connected with or making a donation in support of for-profit or private prisons. Well, at a Chula Vista town hall, our opponent said that she did not stand with private prisons. Well, now I am making a challenge to her. Summer, Summer Stefan, you are the acting DA who says you do not support private prisons. Demand that your party, the Republican Party, sends back money to GEO, who just gave them $10,000 in support of your campaign. See, throughout this entire campaign, my opponent has been engaging in doublespeak. It's happened with the issue of ICE in our courthouses, bail reform, and even rape kits. Well, I'm not gonna allow for her to doublespeak because the people of San Diego need to know where our elected officials stand on important things like private prisons that make money off of the backs of poor people and people of color. We live in a civilized society, and if she says that she stands with me, that she will not support the inhumane practice of contracting private prisons to house inmates and immigrants and children, then she needs to demand that the Republican Party of San Diego County return the money to GEO. We will do this on June 5th. So that's June the 5th, San Diego, our listeners in San Diego County. That's June 5th, and we want you to support Genevieve Jones-Wright for District Attorney. Max? Yeah, she's dropping bombs, brother. She's been dropping it since day one, and I'm in full support of her. Uh, She has even been endorsed by Larry Krasner uh, out in Philadelphia, uh, who is also uh, a huge radical reformist. 
she's beyond Krasner, though, because she really sees this as modern-day slavery and human trafficking, and she's pointing out the culprits who were responsible for most of it right there with the GEO Group, a worldwide organization. And you know oh, yeah. that that, uh, that, that young black mm-hmm. that young black filmmaker you we had on as a guest that you had invited did the interview yeah. and asked her point blank about the Thirteenth mm-hmm. Amendment and she acknowledged that slavery was never abolished. Yes, so so definitely shout out to her and, and please support her. We need more people in office like that. And I said it before, I'm very anti political, uh, but at the same time, I understand that this fight takes every resource available to you and politics is power. So we need to get some people in office who are talking about this issue on a regular basis, especially in the district attorney's office. <clears throat> well, Scotty, uh, there was only a couple things that I really wanted to get out tonight and then we can get into our, our final segments of the evening. And one is kind of frivolous, but it also points paints a picture. It really says a lot. And that's uh, in regards to Kim Kardashian visiting the White House to talk about prison reform. I know that was one of the first things you asked me today, uh, had I heard about it, and I said I I wanted to talk about it. So I I do, and I'd love to hear your opinion, maybe a couple of our callers' opinion, on the idea of sending Kim Kardashian to the White House to talk about prison reform. Well, I'll just say mine real quick uh, and do want to remind people we do got Mind, Body, and Spirit Radio coming up at 10, and I will have to reset the conference line. So just call right back in for those that want to listen to that uh, program. Very important uh, program. I love listening to the ladies. Um, But, yeah, real quick, you know, I asked on Twitter and I tweeted at at, um, uh, Miss Kim Kardashian West, and I said, what makes her such an expert on quote unquote prison reform. How, when has she ever expressed any knowledge on the issues of what's going on in these prisons? And then furthermore, if from what's been reported, she's simply going to ask for one person, a, a, a grandmother who has been enslaved on nonviolent drug crimes for life and she's going to ask for a pardon well that's not a dialogue on what's going on in on in our prisons there's more than just there's a lot of grandmothers and grandfathers and uncles and aunts and fathers and mothers who are in that same same position so to me this is nothing but political theater all right and even bringing Van Jones, who said, hey, if this just results in 4,000 people getting set free, and they're only talking about the federal prisons. Most of the people enslaved in this country are enslaved in state pens, okay? Not federal, not federal plantations, but he, but he tried to give it some legitimacy and saying, hey, I, I'll take that if I can get that and push for it later. But see, that's the problem. The later never comes, okay? And when you settle for crumbs, then... Hey, who knows? It might be another hundred years before we can get some abolitionist reform on the table, Max. Uh, did we lose Max? Oh, I'm sorry. I had myself on mute there, Scotty. Uh, I'm in agreement with you, and I really don't have a lot to say about the issue. I was uh, hoping that other people would have something to say, because for me, the very statement. Kim Kardashian is going to the White House 
to talk about prison reform in itself says it all. That's the society we live in today where reality stars who have no talents whatsoever and are followed by millions of people just to see what they do with their life are now suddenly the go-betweens between the 12 million in jail annually and the 2.4 million in prisons and uh, federal and state prisons every year as their spokesman. How the hell did that happen? I don't know. But it really tells you what type of society we are living in right now. They're not trying to hear nobody who's actually got experience. They're not trying to hear anybody that has actually been in these prisons and experienced these prisons or family members of people or people have studied the issues. Instead, they just want celebrities. Right. No matter, just be a celebrity. Yeah, we got two two quick comments, one from Otis, and I think that Sharon wants to chime back in on this topic. Otis, go ahead. Yes, I'll I'll try to make it as quick as I can. Uh, I've been online fighting with Glenn Greenwald and several other people that are supposed to be prominent about this very same issue. They keep on talking about uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald claims that her notoriety is great, and I'm telling her, look, you're an investigative reporter. You're trying to give a president another photo op so that he can do a symbolic pardon of a single person when we're talking about the lives of 2.3 million people and families all across this nation and experts that have been battling this for years who know exactly what reforms are needed are in touch with the people that are imprisoned and can actually give some concrete information on what it what real reform or change looks like and instead you want to give him another symbolic uh, part of somebody just like he did the dead boxer what good is that in the lives of the people that are being traumatized by a private prison system get out of here with the foolishness and the other thing I like to say is anybody on this listening audience if all you're doing is reading headlines and not bothering to find out what the facts are there's not much need of listening you have to go beyond the headlines. Right. And let's not forget her husband, because that is her husband, just told us slavery was a choice. All right. Well, Sharon, you want to say something on this subject as well? Uh, yes. Scotty yes. Yes. There you go. You know, this, this, is, this is part of that colonial pattern. Control the narrative. Right control the narrative. That's what they're doing. It's like a freaking play that's going on almost. Um, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Okay? So that the gullible will think something's happening when it's really just tokenizing. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Alright, well, um, there you have it, man. <laughs> like I said, it's not a a lot I had to say, and I don't think anybody else really didn't have a lot to say on it because it's just so damn ridiculous. It just makes no sense at all. But when you understand that this is a psychological operation, that they're trying to control the narrative, and they're using the people who have the most followers in order to do that, truth and understanding be damned, then it makes sense. Right, Max. Well, mm-hmm. Max, um, since we're short on time, do you want to go through the profiles real quick? so I can prepare for the next program? Yes, I can get them done real quick. Uh, We'll start off with a rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. 
and his name is Dantia Patterson uh, from Philadelphia. Dantia Patterson and his family have been waiting on this moment for 11 years. Today, as of May 16th, rather, a judge dropped all charges against him and overturned his murder conviction. The crime happened in 2007 outside of a corner store in the 800 block of Granite Street in the city's Oxford Circle section. After reviewing his case, the district attorney's office said they don't believe Patterson shot and killed the victim and asked the judge to free him. She agreed. They say you are innocent until proven guilty. It is the other way around. You are guilty until proven innocent. That is the way it is, Patterson told Action News. I was just happy she granted the motion. I was just happy, but like I was saying, I I ain't the only one in this situation. It's a whole lot of people in my situation, he says. District Attorney Larry Krasner's office says all those years ago, Patterson's case was not investigated or prosecuted properly. They accused their predecessors of misconduct, hiding key information that led to a different suspect, and all around mishandling Patterson's case. Krasner promises to repair what he calls the city's broken criminal justice system. He created a new policy, expunging records of people wrongly accused, and for most individuals who have been charged with a crime but not convicted. Patterson's supporters say the outcome of his case may provide hope to others in similar situations. We have hundreds in our office waiting for review and investigation. There are well over 1,000 in Pennsylvania prisons who are innocent right now. I have to repeat that. There are well over 1,000 in Pennsylvania prisons who are innocent right now. So for Dantia, we bring home, there is a lot more work to do, says Neelam Sangvi with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio would like to say to Dantia Patterson, welcome to freedom, brother. Welcome. Welcome to freedom. And thank you, Pennsylvania Innocence Project, for the great work you do the innocence projects all across the country they're really showing how broken this system is and how many people's lives have been destroyed well that leads us to our final segment of the evening which is our rider um, which is our abolitionist in profile and tonight our abolitionist in profile is Eliza Ann Gardner May 28th happy birthday 1831 to January 4th 1922 she was an African American abolitionist and religious leader from Boston Massachusetts she founded the Missionary Society of the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, AMEZ, and was a strong advocate for women's equality within the church. Eliza Ann Gardner was born in New York City to James and Eliza Gardner. As a child, she moved with her family to Boston, where her father had a successful career as a ship contractor. Their West End neighborhood was an important center of Boston's African-American community and the abolitionist movement. The school she attended, the only public school for black children in Boston at the time, was taught by abolitionists. Her parents were politically active, and the family home at 20 North Anderson Street was a stop on the Underground Railroad. She was a relative of W.E.B. Du Bois. Gardner was a gifted student and won several scholarships, but because academic and professional opportunities for black women were limited, she trained as a dressmaker. As a young woman, Gardner became active in the church and in the anti-slavery movement while making her living as a dressmaker and later as keeper of a boarding house. As an activist, she knew and worked with many abolitionist leaders, including Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, and Wendell Phillips. Meanwhile, she taught Sunday school for African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, eventually being named Boston Sunday School Superintendent. In 1876, 
She founded the Zion Missionary Society in New England to raise funds to send missionaries to Africa. Gardner is referred to as the mother of the organization, which later came to be known nationally as the Ladies' Home and Foreign Missionary Society. Gardner's fundraising efforts met with resistance in 1884 when members of the male-dominated AMEZ Church objected to the creation Sorry about that technical issue. We got knocked off the board, and I'm reconnecting now. This conference is being recorded by the organizer. Uh, Charles, uh, I forget his last name. In any case, he's going to to prison to finish out a 35-year term for selling crack to an informant back in the 90s. He served 21 years. They let him go, and now they figure they made a mistake and they want him to go back to prison. So he's going back to prison. If he, I think he has already went back to prison. Mm. Got to read. Yes, Max, I'm, I'm having some technical issues. Uh, sorry about that to those who are listening live. Uh, I just have some more work to do. Uh, the portion that you missed, I will splice into so uh, the podcast, and you can check out uh, the podcast and share it. Uh, are we in final comments, Max? Yes, sir. Well, I want to thank our, our guest, our abolitionist sister, um, Sharon Smith, for her words that she shared and the information that she shared with us tonight, she is much appreciated. You know, I appreciate every abolitionist because quite frankly, Max, there's just not enough of us. And that's why we put together this program to spread the message of abolitionists and she represents what we're about very well. So I want to thank her. I want to thank all our callers for their questions and their comments. And again, I want to thank you, Max. As always, I echo all of your sentiments, especially about our guest this evening. I had so been looking forward to finally having her on, and I hope that Sharon Smith comes back again uh, to talk with us here on New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, she is one of those voices that... Well, I'm going to close mine out, uh, Scotty, just by reading a quick paragraph from an article in The New Yorker called The Caging of America. For most privileged professional people, the experience of confinement is a mere brush. 
encountered after a kid's arrest, say, for a great many people, poor people in America, particularly poor black men, prison is a destination that braids through an ordinary life, much as high school and college do for rich white ones. More than half of all black men without a high school diploma go to prison at some point in their lives. Mass incarceration on a scale almost unexampled in human history is a fundamental fact of our country today. Perhaps the fundamental fact, as slavery was the fundamental fact of, the, of 1850. In truth, there are more black men in the grip of the criminal justice system in prison, on parade, probation, or on parole than were in slavery then. Overall, there are now more people under correctional supervision in America, more than 6 million, than were in the Gulag Archipelago under Stalin at its height. The city of the confined and the controlled. Lock of Town is now the second largest in the United States. And that's a quote from The Caging of America. Remember this, if you don't remember nothing else. Abolition is a reason for revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace, fam. Peace. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up no matter if the prize is high in the skies or deep please stay tuned as we get ready